Rise and shine, you Syracuse superfans. It's time to pour yourself a tall, delicious glass of orange fizz. Syracuse recruiting news, insider information, latest SU buzz. The Syracuse blogosphere comes to life on the central New York airwaves. It's Fizz Radio. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Fizz Radio. We're coming to you from Syracuse. It's Jonathan Hoppy and Tim Leonard with you. So glad you're joining us. We're going to talk a lot today about the upcoming football season, a big-picture look at the 2020 recruiting cycle, why that's maybe not going so great. Where does Dino Baber stack up in terms of ACC coaches? Big Ten ACC Challenge, we've got some news for that as well, a new game on the Syracuse basketball schedule, and it's all coming up in the next hour. Tim, and speaking of recruiting, Syracuse off to a bit of a slow start in the 2020 cycle. Right, I mean, it's it's super early, so we should start with that, preface everything with that, but just three commits right now, and you know the three commits are all decent, no one to really write home about or no four stars or anything of that nature. You've got two Maryland-based running backs that could make an impact in their underclassmen days, but project to be pretty good players down the road, and then a defensive end that probably is going to see the field his sophomore year, maybe a little bit as a freshman. So there's just three commits, and when you stack that up to the rest of the ACC, I mean, you got a team like Georgia Tech with a new head coach that's already reeled in 13 commits, and that's obviously the other end of the spectrum right now, and it is early, but where they stack up, it's 15th out of, or excuse me, 14th out of 14 teams in the ACC, according to 24-7 Sports right now, so... That doesn't bode well. It is early, and they are projecting to get some more bigger names in the mix, but just three commits is a little concerning. That's not a great start, and I wrote about this, orangefizz.net. That's where you can find all of our written content. We post daily everything Syracuse basketball, football, recruiting. This is Fizz Radio. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and it all starts on SoundCloud as well. And that's where you can find this episode if you want to go back and listen to it at another time, but Clemson has 17 verbal commits. <laughs> Miami has 15. That's a new head coach, too, but I think it speaks of where these teams are located, and that's the biggest challenge that Syracuse and Dino Babers face. They're not in the South. A state like Georgia Tech, an hour and a half away from Georgia, they've still got a lot to recruit from. Kirby Smart can't take everybody, right? and he's recruiting at an exceptional level right now, but when you look at Jeff Collins coming in, replacing Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech, he's kept 13 verbals for the class of 2020. That's impressive, and for Syracuse, just three, it does make you wonder a little bit, Tim, especially after that big season. Yeah, it's a big recruiting class for them, and I feel like they've tried to go more down south, specifically Florida is where they're really targeting, and there's been a lot of wide receivers. I know Cornelius Nunn's a guy from this most recent cycle in 2019 that's one of the bigger names from Florida, and that might be kind of their territory long term, but let's face it, last year's class was pretty disappointing considering the buzz around the school and they got to a 10-3 and three season during the midst of that recruiting cycle when people are starting to sign and do those verbal commitments and everything. To only finish kind of back half of the ACC is a little disappointing, and it actually was a dip compared to the 2018 cycle. So Dino's got something to prove here on the recruiting front, and I think it's very early in this class, and you can see signs of some of these bigger-name guys. You can see 
that there is progress in this cycle already. Bigger names are including Syracuse in the top tens, top fives. They're on in the mix for more of these guys that are in the conversations with LSU, Miami, some of these bigger name schools. So that all bodes well, but you got to get the commits. And right now that's the only way to size this up. And they've just got three of them, which is way behind the curve. The big takeaway for me was last year's recruiting class was a bit of a disappointment. And I think we were just basing that off the fact that Dino Babers has come in, he's got his guys, he's had a chance to fully recruit most of these players, but we really did not see that come to fruition. We did see the linebackers. Syracuse got some good linebackers. That was a big area of need. And they need them, frankly. So that's a positive. But overall, we have really not seen a change. Syracuse has been in the bottom quarter of the ACC for quite some time now. Right, and I think to play devil's advocate, you bring up a good point there. The case for maybe why it was a down year in the 2019 cycle, this most recent recruiting class, not a lot of guys left. There weren't a ton of openings, so it's hard to convince a wide receiver or a running back to come to Syracuse or any of those skill position guys because they've got such a young crop of players that's already established and there's a lot of competition at those areas. Jaden Dodden, he's a wide receiver in this 2020 class. Amin Vanover, a defensive end, he's someone I highlighted because, as you pointed out in the recruiting guide, he's someone that's already put Syracuse inside of his top 10. That's a four-star guy. No four stars, according to 247 Sports last year. That's something that could change. Either of those players would drastically change this 2020 class. And like we said off the top, it is way too early to sit down and look at the rankings They could be completely different when it's all said and done this time next year. Heck, it's still six months or more until even the early signing period. Yeah, (laughs) it's a lot of time left here. And even you look at someone like Jared Greenfield, who is a safety all the way on the West Coast in California, who put Syracuse in his top five with schools like Oregon, Arizona State, Cal. Everyone's picking him to go to Oregon, so they might not get this guy. But he's a four-star safety On the West Coast, hasn't even visited Syracuse, so that really means they're probably not going to get him because he's announcing his decision actually tomorrow on Sunday, June 10th. But that's a guy that just shows, all right, a four-star safety on the other side of the country is putting Syracuse in his top five. And you have to believe that's just because they went 10-3 and last year, and there is that buzz there. And they saw a guy like Andre Sisco at the same position become an All-American with that coaching staff. But... You know, you get guys in the top five and the top ten, and these bigger names are in the conversation, which is great. But like I said, Dino still has a little bit to prove in terms of racking up the commitments and seeing the progress overall. Because, yeah, we base a lot of this based on how many four-stars are in the mix, but you'd like to see them have a little bit better success rate. I know they're known for just throwing out as many offers as basically anyone in the country. I think they were second in that category last year, but... You got to start seeing these commits, and it's getting a little tense because it it is early, but they're behind the curve. A 10-win season, fantastic. Everyone here knows that. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that. But keep in mind, the season before that, just four wins. The season before that, four wins as well. So it's not like Dino Babers has come in and completely overhaul this program in terms of success on the field. I think that's kind of going to be a theme for us throughout this show is that Dino Babers has done a great job and 10 wins is exceptional, 
But now the question becomes, what do you do next year? And I think if you repeat the success you had last year, this upcoming season, then the recruits start to come a little bit more. My question, though, it's all about facilities. That's right. kind of the era that we're in now in college football. Anyone that watches the sport, follows the sport, knows that Dabo Sweeney created Clemson based off this massive facility that has games and a slide, and everyone's right. seen Holly Rowe <laughs> go down the slide on game day with Dabo Sweeney. I mean, it's that kind of thing that entices these recruits, and you have to put a ton of money into your program if you want to compete. Now, Syracuse, not on the level of those programs. I don't think we're ever going to see the funding up to that point, especially not in the near future. Yeah. But in your mind, what facilities need to change and how drastic would it need to be? They need to make an overhaul because, like you said, it's Syracuse, New York. It's not Georgia. It's not Florida. A lot of these guys that are in the hotbed areas, these four stars, these recruits that really change your program – you got to convince them to come all the way up north to Syracuse, and that's you're already behind the eight ball just based on that alone. So how can you entice a recruit that's a four-star in an SEC country to avoid that and go up to Syracuse? Well, maybe the facilities is what draws them because right now they're behind in the facility category, and honestly, you can't really blame them for being behind because the program wasn't generating that much money in the mid-2000s and even right up to last year. So now maybe you reevaluate, and the reason why you're still not seeing the reciprocals after the 10-3 and season from recruits is you could still make the case, like you were saying earlier, that that was a fluke. Dino still in this program still has to prove all right, that was 10-3, and three, but we can back that up with another solid season. Here it is season. again in right. a trip to the Orange Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> then you'd really start seeing That's some four stars. That's Right. And I agree with you about the facilities. You take a look at the football complex. You and I, we've both been in there. It's a nice facility. And but, Syracuse does have some things. Before you get to the butt, they've got the outdoor <laughs> field. They've got the indoor field. It's all nice. The problem is it's just kind of the bare minimum, especially these days. They've got nice facilities, but it's just the bare minimum. You don't have the over-the-top stuff that you have at all these other schools that are winning at a high level. Yeah, they've been right around 12, 13 in the ACC, sometimes 10, 11 in terms of recruiting class. That's probably right around where they are in terms of if you stacked up all the facilities in the ACC right now. I mean, I don't think they're much better than many teams, probably a Boston College. You know, I haven't been everywhere, and obviously Clemson's number one, and for good reason, because they have the money to pour into that. But I do think in order to take that next step, now, obviously, they've they made a huge leap last year, and it's you got to be realistic here. It takes time to get to the level of a program like a say, a Florida State in the ACC or Virginia Tech. But in order to establish that, you're going to have to upgrade your facilities at some point. Let's make one note to what you just said, too. Clemson has the money. That's why they're doing it. But they put the money into the program before the program returned a bunch of money to them. So now John Wildhack, he's made some big changes so far at Syracuse. You've got the dome renovations coming It's going to be interesting to see. They paid Dino Babers. Now, what do they do to the facilities? And speaking of Coach Dino Babers, we'll talk about him on the other side. Where does he stack up in terms of ACC football coaches? This is interesting, heading into his fourth season here in Syracuse. Don't go anywhere. Fizz Radio continues here on the Score 1260 on the other side. 
Back on Fizz Radio, rolling right along here on the Score 1260. Thanks for joining us this morning. Jonathan Hoppy back with Tim Leonard. We just talked recruits. Now we're going to talk about the guy that recruits them, Dino Babers, fourth season in Syracuse. Mr. Wonderful last year, bringing 10 wins to the program. What does he have in store this year, Tim? We're going to break down these coaches in the ACC. Just your gut reaction. Where do you think Dino Babers stacks up? He's got a case for the second-best coach right now. And, again, it's probably a little bit premature to make that case just based on one good year. But it depends on how you really assess this. If you just want to assess it based on pedigree, he's probably not, you know, he's probably in the five, six range and can't really make a case for number two. But if you just want to assess this on, that's the guy that I want coaching my football team for the next five years, you can make the case for him being number two right now after last year. The upside, it's definitely there. Right. You look at the track record, what he's done with quarterbacks, receivers, what he did at Bowling Green. This, that, and the third, the track record is there. And I think that's why a lot of programs, a lot of national media outlets are pretty high on the Orange this year. So I'm going to break down mine, and we kind of did this by tiers. Right. Let's see if we had any difference in the first tier. I've got Dabo Sweeney and nobody else. <laughs> That's my tier one. <laughs> okay. You can't go any different. He's head and shoulders above the rest. And that's what's so interesting about him is that he's just built a program. He's... You know, some people say that he's not the best X's and O's coach. Maybe Nick Saban would outdo him in that regard. But what he's done at Clemson in a short amount of time is remarkable. And I guess not that short amount of time, but to turn them into a perennial power in under 10 years is pretty remarkable. So now let's go to the second tier. At the top of my list, I've got David Cutcliffe at Duke, and he's a guy that gets a lot of hype. A lot of people talk about him, especially now Daniel Jones He's coached the Mannings, the quarterback whisperer. Yes, the quarterback whisperer. So if you buy into that, you know, David Cutcliffe, based on his track record of a college football coach, I mean, I think he's got to be the second best coach in the ACC right now. I have him number three. I have Dino number two. But I think this second tier is a pretty big group, and I'll let you list off the rest of yours because – It's a lot of coaches that are, like, proven and by no means on the hot seat, but they're not really, like, gunning for the next big job. Maybe Dino is tops that list if you rank it based on that alone. Yeah, probably him and Bronco Mendenhall. Right, and I think some a lot of these coaches are trending up, but they're at kind of middle-tier programs, and they've just done a nice job with those programs. So it's a big group, too, in my eyes. If you made a top 10, top 15 coaches in the country— You'd probably only have Dabo. Yes. I think if you even did Power 6 conferences or Power 5 in college football, of course, that would be maybe Dabo, and then you'd have to go to like the mid-20s before you got to a Cutcliffe or another ACC coach. My argument, though, for the conference is that it's so deep because a lot of these coaches are solid football coaches. They're good coaches. There's not a lot of bad coaches in the ACC. So going through with my second tier, I've got Cutcliffe. I've got Dave Doran at NC State. Really turned them into the power school in North Carolina. Is this in any particular order? I or? have ranked them okay. in order. So gotcha. I'm kind of going down as to what I thought. Then I had Dino Babers, Justin Fuente. Maybe last year he would have been higher. Question now is what's going on with him? Virginia Tech was really bad last year. Josh Jackson transfers out of the program. Yeah, I've got him in my tier four. 
Really? <laughs> I think he's underachieved. Wow. And I'll let you keep going, but okay. that's that's the biggest I'm difference so far. I'm kind of giving so him far. the respect factor there. Right. And I've got Dave Clawson. People talk about the fundraising at Wake Forest. A lot of people turn a blind eye, but they lost their quarterback, Sam Hartman, last year and still finished on a strong He's note. been great. They're playing some good football. Kate Carney's a solid running back as well. Then I've got Willie Taggart, Bronco Mendenhall, third-tier Narduzzi, and then I've got all the guys, Mac Brown, Scott Satterfield, Jeff Collins, Manny Diaz. I've got Steve Adazio in that third tier as well. I just feel like Narduzzi, Adazio, you know what you're getting from. Right, they're in the same tier. It's, yeah, they're, they're very average coaches right. in terms of the product they put out. I mean, they're solid. You're not going to fire them. I mean, Pat Narduzzi just won Slightly the Coastal. above 500, it feels like, every year. And you kind of, I mean, they'll produce some NFL guys, get some decent recruits, but they're kind of doing with what they have at those programs. Is winning the Coastal even a thing? Is yeah, that I don't something know. <laughs> you put on your resume these days? Right, because what did they go last year in the regular season? Six and six, yeah. I think. <laughs> right. And they won a That's won. what Pat Narduzzi is. He's a six and six guy. I wouldn't have even made a bowl game if Eric Dungy completes that pass on the run and they win the Coastal Division. Yeah, Pretty crazy. What, what could have been for Syracuse? But Mac Brown, Satterfield, Collins, Manny Diaz. I They're mean, all wild cards. Yeah, you just don't know. I mean, I would say out of those hires, I probably like Scott Satterfield the most, and then Jeff Collins, and then Mac Brown, and then I'm just not really on the Manny really? Diaz hype train. I just, you got to think this is a guy who just accepted the Temple job as head coach. Right. And then he comes back to Miami. He's never been a head coach at a major program. He's got a track record of a big time defensive coordinator. And they were great, and they will be great on defense. Shaquille Quarterman, the rest of those linebackers. They'll be there this year, but that's why he's at the bottom for me. I'm interested to see what you have. So my tier two is pretty similar. I rank Dino as my second best coach. Cutcliffe number three, so just a bit of a flip. You had Dino at four, right? Yes. So Dino then Cutcliffe in my tier two. Mendenhall at four. I mean, he had a really strong recruiting yeah. class last year. And he's, one of their better classes. Great. They're basically the Syracuse of the Coastal. Yeah. I think I think there's no reason to believe he's not firmly in that tier two now. Dave Doran, just based on the NFL prospects he brings in, I have right behind Mendenhall and then Clawson rounds out my tier two. All those guys, if you just look at it from the perspective of taking with what they have, the program that they're at, especially Dave Clawson, to win 22 games in three years at Wake Forest. And you touched on it a little bit, but all those programs have had a lot of down years. They came in and had to rebuild it, basically. Cutcliffe at Duke, and most of those are basketball schools. Dave Clawson, that's my sleeper team this year. Yeah. I know we were talking about it, but I just want to get that on the air here. In terms of the Atlantic Division, I think Wake Forest... That might be a 7-8 win football team if a couple of things go their way. And as of right now, I have them finishing above NC State. Kind of a down year for Dave Doran, but it's still only June. But you're right about Clawson. Yeah, so then my I grouped the third tier, basically the wild cards that you mentioned, all those new coaches. So you've got Mac Brown, who we know a little bit about, but how's it's he going to be returned? Right, it's been a while. <laughs> Scatterfield's in there, obviously coming over from App State to Louisville. It's going to take some time. I did like the hire, but you're not going to see returns overnight with him. Manny Diaz at Miami, you already touched on him. There's just a ton of unknown. He's the biggest mystery right now, just based on you have no head coaching track record to go off of. No, that's right. 
and then Jeff Collins will round out my tier three. So those are all new coaches. And Collins, we touched on a little bit earlier on this show, he's doing a good job in recruiting, but we'll see how he does coming over from Temple. My tier four, the big name that I think we have a disagreement on, or two big names, is Justin Fuente and Willie Taggart are in my tier four. I just wow. I I don't <laughs> see why you have Taggart sell, sell, so sell. high because of what I mean. He last two years you win seven games at Oregon, a huge program, and then you win just five at Florida State. Just based on pedigree, he has completely underachieved at two big programs the last two years. He's a great offensive mind, and there's a reason that he's climbed up the ladder. Certainly Oregon, ever since Chip Kelly left, kind of a turnaround. They're they're starting to get there now, now, but I like Willie Taggart. I think he's going to turn that ship around this year for Florida State. When you look at what he does offensively, kind of that spread system, the Gulf Coast offense, if you will, I think he's a good mind, and I think now we're going to learn just how good of a coach he is. If he brings everybody together down there, sure, I think he can be one of the best coaches in the league. But you're right. If they struggle again this season, I mean, this is where you earn the big bucks if you're Willie Taggart. After that debacle last year, what do you have in store for the upcoming season? I mean, if you were just going based off who's on the hot seat as ACC coaches, he's probably number one right now. I mean, I'd say Fuente and Taggart Right, so that's kind of where I based my Tier 4 on. They're going in, and they've got to prove that last year was a fluke because Fuente, I mean, those are two perennial programs in the ACC that really struggled last year. And for Taggart and Florida State, not to get to a bowl game, I mean, that hasn't happened in 25, 30 years probably. So he's got to bounce back after a struggling year one for sure. But that's my tier four, rounded out Fuente, Taggart, and then the Adazio-Narduzzi combo that we touched on. I don't really think it's fair to put them in the last tier, but I just put them behind the new coaches because those are wild cards right now. I mean, those guys have a lot of job security. Maybe more so Narduzzi after winning the Coastal, but I think they're kind of in that same ballpark. Uh, the ACC is going to be fun this year. Myself and Tim will be down at the ACC kickoff in July. That'll be here before you know it. A little over a month away right now. We'll have all the coverage for you then as we ramp up things for the college football season. But on the other side of this break here on Fizz Radio on the Score 1260, we'll talk basketball. A new opponent for Syracuse, Big Ten ACC Challenge. All the info on that next here on Fizz Radio. Summer in Syracuse, and you know what that means. The slow release of the 2019-2020 basketball schedule in terms of non-conference play for the Orange Always happens this time of year. Just this week, we got word on the Big Ten ACC Challenge. It's Iowa coming to the Carrier Dome December 3rd. Jonathan Hoppy back with Tim Leonard with you on Fizz Radio. Thanks for listening to us, whether you're on the Score 1260, on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to Orange Fizz. We'll post at least once a week. When the season picks up, we'll be posting twice a week, maybe even more breaking down football, basketball, and everything in between. But now basketball, Tim, this was big schedule announcement. When you think about non-conference, the Big Ten ACC Challenge is crucial. Syracuse gets a home game against the Hawkeyes. It's not the most sexy opponent. I think a lot of people wanted them to see a Michigan State or a Michigan, but this is a good Iowa basketball team that's bringing back a lot of their roster from last year that 
lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament. You remember they made that big comeback against Tennessee, actually forced overtime, and then lost. They lose Tyler Cook to the NBA draft, one of their best players from last year, but Jordan Bohannon is back, and he's basically like the Steph Curry for them. That's a generous comparison, but... You mean Joe Girard? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) That's another generous comparison, but he, uh, he chucks threes, and he's... A guy that they're going to have to extend the zone on a little bit because he's their leading scorer coming back as a senior that's going to be tough to stop. And this is an Iowa team that should make the tournament and should be a top five, top six team in the Big Ten next year. So it's a tough opponent. And this schedule is looking pretty good for Syracuse right now. Because you think you've got an exhibition game and then you've got Virginia. That's your home opener. That's tough. No one's expecting the Orange to win that game when it comes to be that time Especially early November. Especially with one returning starter. Right. And Virginia bringing a lot of people back and just won a national championship. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that did happen. Tony Bennett's going to be coming in hot, but when you look at the rest of the schedule, you've got your normal games and they'll continue to come out. You've got Cornell and those kind of teams coming to the Dome. But then you've also got that trip to Barclays Center. It's the NIT tip-off. So we're going to find out Oklahoma State, Penn State, Ole Miss in there. Who will Syracuse play? We'll find out. But those are two games against good opponents. Then you wrap around in the Carrier Dome, and you play Iowa. So we'll find out a lot about that team in a week. Right. In seven days, they're going to play on a Wednesday, the 27th, against one of those teams in the NIT season tip-off, whether it's Ole Miss, Oklahoma State, or Penn State. So all three pretty solid teams, maybe not top 25 teams, but all Power 6 conference teams that are pretty tough test. And then you'll play Friday, whether you win or lose, you have another game against one of those teams, and that's the 29th of November. And then you turn around... And just four or five days, and Tuesday, you host Iowa in the Dome. And remember, they've got Georgetown December 14th. We know the date of that game. So that's that stretch. In those seven days, you play three teams that are likely tournament teams. Maybe two of them will be tournament teams. It's hard to say right now. But they're all Power 6 teams that are going to be kind of a litmus test. And I know they get Virginia in that first game, but it feels like Remember when Syracuse went on the road or went to Barclays last time when they played South Carolina, and that was like their first Power 6 test? It feels like we're going to find out a lot about this team and where they're at in the non-conference portion over the course of those seven days. That's going to be make or break. Yeah, it looks like a good schedule to me. And I'm excited because, as we know, one returning starter, that's going to be tough. A lot's going to rely on the freshmen. What can they produce? But it seems fair. It seems like an exciting slate for this young group to attack. And when you look at an Iowa team, that's a team you can beat. Especially at home. Yeah, At home, it's a good team. That's going to be an evenly matched game. I mean, I don't know where we anticipate the line to be. You think Iowa maybe has a little bit more firepower returning, but where will Syracuse be at that point? We'll find out. And it's kind of, you know, the next big test after the Virginia game, we'll get another ACC game possibly early in the season as well. This looks good. I mean, this looks fun. I think they're done in terms of, you know, power six teams. I think this is what we're getting. And I think it's plenty good enough. Yeah, it's... It's three Power 6 teams, two of them at a neutral site. It's Virginia at home. I mean, I know that's not technically non-conference, but if you're talking in terms of the 2019 portion of the schedule, you get two ACC teams, and probably that second one's going to be in December on the road. So there's a lot of games in there we're going to find out about this young team. Before all of this happened, Syracuse going to Italy. This week we found out about those dates as well. We knew they were going over there what it's going to look like. They'll come in for a brief training camp early August. 
Then they're heading overseas Saturday, August 10th. They return Tuesday, August 20th. So just a 10-day trip before school starts for the Orange. August 12th, 14th, 17th, 18th. You've got games, bunch of Italian select teams. So no one that will really know on the other side. But overall, I mean, you got to think this will be a good bonding experience. Especially, I don't think it could have worked out any better given yeah. how young this roster is. It's great timing, and I know this only lines up. You can only do it, I think it's once every four years, if not three years. And I believe last time they did this, they made it all the way to the Final Four. So I don't know how much stock you take in that. But this does time up very well when you consider you've got five freshmen coming in, and probably three or four of them are going to have to play significant minutes for freshmen at least and, and make an impact right away. So... I think that's crucial because, like we said, this non-conference portion of the schedule, I mean, if you include Virginia in that conversation, that's your very first game. That's really tough for freshmen. So at least now a Joe Girard or a Gadeen or someone like that gets some Italy experience and gets to go overseas and learn and polish their game up before that Virginia game, and maybe it's not as much of a rude awakening. This is exciting, and I know we always do this, but... Whenever the expectations are high in this area, it's just kind of frustrating because there's so much pressure, it feels, on the program to perform and people aren't happy. But this year, I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised if this team can gel early, if the freshmen can really hit their potential, maybe even go a little bit higher than what we think they can do. I just feel like the pieces are there with Elijah Hughes being the main man Get him the rock. See what happens elsewhere. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about in my eyes. When you look at the last three years, and this might not be the case for mid-2000s and even early 2010s range, but the last three years, if you just take that as a snapshot, where where they were based on expectations kind of deemed how they played. Three years ago, when you're coming off a Final Four run and you had Andrew White and John Gillen, you got Tyler Lydon coming back, they were a top 25 team. Don't make the tournament. Good expect or high expectations, they fell short. Two years ago, they have basically just Brissett and Battle coming back, and they're not a top 25 team. People are worried, and they go to the Sweet 16. And now, obviously, that was kind of a fluky run, but they made the tournament, and they overachieved. Last year, we know they underachieved based on being a top 25 team, partially because Frank Howard got suspended, but they lose in the first round. So maybe this bodes well that they're not going to be a preseason top 25 team this go around. And I think, like you said, expectations can determine a lot. And I know we've talked about this ad nauseum here on Fizz Radio, but it's really true. I think these freshmen could come in and make an impact and surprise some people. Syracuse has a solid team, a solid schedule. Things just seem to be lining up. Expectations won't be that high. We'll see what happens from now until August into November. But that's the way it looks as Iowa is the Big Ten ACC Challenge game in the Dome in early December. All right, wrapping things up, when we come back, we'll get to your voice. It's Fizz Feedback next here on The Score 1260. It's Fizz Radio. Closing up shop here on Fizz Radio, it's the Score 1260, it's Apple Podcast, it's SoundCloud, everything in between. Thanks for finding us, and we're glad you've joined us. Jonathan Hoppy and Tim Leonard wrapping things up. We'll get to Fizz Feedback now. We'll hear from you. What do you have to say? Every week we pose a couple of questions on Twitter and have you vote and we'll discuss. Always feel free to comment. We'll bring up your comments as well. 
Tim, let's start here. Which Syracuse NBA prospect will get drafted? Tyus O'Shea, both or neither? And I think this is something that you and I have talked about a lot. Seems like that momentum for O'Shea Brissett has yeah. dropped off a little bit. Yeah, I mean, neither is leading the vote with 52% right now, and I agree. I mean, how could you not pick neither at this point? I know O'Shea was getting a lot of hype around the combine time, and obviously Wes Brown, who we had on Fizz Radio a couple weeks ago, tweeted that he thought he was going to be a late first, early second round pick based on what he was hearing from NBA scouts and NBA teams. But if we didn't have that intel from Wes Brown and we didn't get that tweet, there's no way that anyone would be picking O'Shea to be drafted right now because just based on mock drafts alone, he's not on them. He's not on the ringers. He's not on ESPNs. Any mock draft that goes two rounds. Now, granted, not every single one goes two rounds, but there's no O'Shea and there's no Tyus on them right now. So I don't expect either of them to get drafted, at least right now. That's the way I lean as well. I think it's pretty much the only way to lean at this point. All that hype has cooled off, and now 52% say neither, 10% say both, 30% say O'Shea, 9 say Tyus. So I guess at this point, just Tyus being drafted, I mean, that's that's pretty much a long shot. Yeah. I don't think, I think O'Shea probably has, I'd say, a 35% chance of getting taken in one of the two rounds of this NBA draft. Tyus is probably below 10% at this point. I mean... We we know Tyus has a better pedigree coming out of college, so that might sound weird to some people, but we've talked about this. It's about potential for the NBA, and O'Shea has more potential. Brissett certainly has more potential. The question, though, enough to be drafted, we'll have to find out. And something to keep in mind, only takes one team. So yeah. you you've got to think that these guys, the Jonathan Javonis of the world and Ringer.com, they maybe don't see it, but if one team wants to take a chance, then they can get drafted. But O'Shea Brissett, too, he's definitely going to have a chance in the NBA Summer League oh, yeah. to show his value. Even probably Frank Howard, I know he has a workout with the Wizards, his local team there in Washington, which is big for him. He'll probably get a chance in the Summer League. He's not going to get drafted by any means, and he's not in the conversation to be, but a lot of these guys will have a chance, and that's where it's going to be really crucial. It's not so much... There's not a huge difference between getting selected with the 55th overall pick and not being drafted. Yes, it adds a little more money. It adds a little more security in terms of teams are willing to sort of see it through with you. They're more likely if they do draft you, if they waste a pick on you or do use one of their picks on you. But I I think O'Shea, Tyus, Frank Howard, they're all going to get their chance in summer league, especially O'Shea and Tyus, and that's where they're going to have to take advantage of it. We'll find out. The draft is coming up on June 20th, so a little bit away, just about two and a half weeks. We'll get to that on orangefizz.net, and that draft is two weeks away, so not even two and a half. Orangefizz.net will have all the coverage, our written articles. You can find podcasts as well, orangefizz.net. Apple Podcasts, that's how you can stay up to date with everything that's going on in Fizz Nation, and we always appreciate you following along. So let's shift gears now back to football. Harrison Singer, one of our great writers, put out which Syracuse player is most likely to have a breakout season. Now, he listed some guys like Tommy DeVito, Andrew Armstrong, Abdul Adams, Tristan Jackson. We came up with our own list. We put Andrew Armstrong, Tristan Jackson, Taj Harris, and other 
comment below. 47% say Taj Harris, the sophomore receiver, in for a big year. The transfer, Jackson, he's at 40%. Andrew Armstrong not getting a ton of love, but he seems like that obvious guy to take the next step at linebacker. Just 6%, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty accurate what Fizz did. It's kind of a two-horse race there. I like Jackson over Harris, honestly, and I think that's because just based on like his recruiting stars and coming over from Michigan State as a former four-star at one point, and I know it's a small sample size, but what we saw at the Camping World Bowl is someone that they can throw it up to inside the red zone and he can go make a play, and that's not dismissive of Tosh Harris's game whatsoever. I like his game a lot too, but I think Jackson has the chance to be that Jamal Custis this year if he really blossoms and and makes progress beyond what we're expecting. I think Taj Harris's ceiling is a little bit lower. So I'd take Jackson in this conversation, but they're both very good receivers that are honestly both going to probably have breakout years. That's funny. Last year, that was the conversation, right? Who's going to be that next big receiver? Butler was in the mix. (laughs) Steve Ishmael, right? And it was all those guys. This year, it seems like more of a committee thing. There's not that one clear guy, but I would lean towards Taj Harris. I just felt like he was so consistent last year. So does Fizz Nation. That number just dropped to 46% while we are recording this. So things getting a little bit tighter, but still, Taj Harris in the lead. I just felt like he was in all the right spots last year. And he's got that frame he can use, a big target for Tommy DeVito. I just think it's exciting the way that he played last year. What can he do this year? I mean, I I do think there's a lot going for him, but Jackson is the bigger target. He's more of that Custis build. Harris is 6'2", 6'3", so he's more of that, you know, throw it out to him in space and let him go to work. But just based on touchdown numbers or a red zone threat or a guy that has a bigger ceiling, I'd take Jackson. I think he could be that guy, that Jamal Custis, that Edatawo, that puts up those Belindikoff-like numbers. Now, that's... Probably lofty to expect that because, again, we've just seen half a game, basically, in an exhibition like Camping World Bowl. But I'm a little higher on his ceiling. Let's get to the comments. Ryan Hollinsworth on Twitter says, A healthy Ed Hendricks and Juan Wallace. That's like a pretty that. good comment. Yeah. Ed Hendricks, a guy that we're forgetting about, missed all of last He's the forgotten year man. with an injury. He was someone that our own Tyler Aki, who used to work here at the Fizz, said was going to break out last year but he ended up missing the season with injury. So we'll keep an eye on him this year as well. You go based off stars and recruiting, he's right up there. He was a four-star on a lot of sites, so that's a guy that really could break out if he gets healthy. And then Lucas Satchel says, all the above, hopefully. I I agree with that, too. (laughs) Another good comment. I mean, I think Armstrong getting 6% isn't a good indication of what he could do. It's It's a lot of these guys that have to step up and play bigger roles. And I think the narrative over the past few weeks continues to be driven around this team. It's Tommy DeVito. If he's good, this team is going to be good. And I think people feel that way. I think there's too much optimism a little bit that Tommy DeVito is going to step in and take over and do such a good job. I'm someone who believes that. But if he struggles in his first ever start, he's never started a game. Yeah, so crazy. he'll start against Liberty. We'll see what he's got. But if he struggles being the guy, it's much easier to come in in relief when there's no pressure. If he struggles, uh, this could be a long season. It could. And I think it's tough that they play Maryland and Clemson in his second start ever and his third start ever, You know, assuming all goes according to plan there. So 
it's going to be it's going to be a steep learning curve for him. And yes, he's not your typical all right, first year starter because he played a lot of games last year in meaningful minutes. North Carolina, he was as clutch as he could be and probably the biggest quarter of the season when you really look back on it last year at least. So, we'll see what he does, but I do think he's got a lot of good guys at wide receiver and Jackson Harris they're going to help him out and Armstrong obviously that's a big area with linebacker but he could step up as well. Real quick before we get out of here, the debate continues Abdul Adams, Mo Neal, which guy will be the feature back this year? I think Abdul Adams for the same reason as Tristan Jackson, he's got a bigger ceiling. He's got higher ratings, he's got a better build, he on paper has more upside than a Moniel, but that's not to say that I don't like Moniel or I don't like Taj Harris. I think it's going to be by committee there as well, but I like Adams. All right, that'll do it for Fizz Radio this week. Find us at orangefizz.net for Tim Leonard. I'm Jonathan Hoppy signing off, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the Score 1260.